welcome to Soccer Morning on World Soccer Talk. Here's your host, Jason Davis. Good morning, everybody. Happy Wednesday. Welcome into Soccer Morning, brought to you by World Soccer Talk, here on the first day of April 2015. Finally feeling like spring in my particular area. I'm very excited for that. I am so, so tired of cold and snow and cold rain, and I'm sure it's going to rain. But right now it's not. It's it's not particularly warm, but it's, the sun is shining. I get to walk around a little bit and enjoy the day. It's spring break, so I'm I'm also responsible for entertaining a six year old, which is always just just a blast. Really, you, you you figure I can set him up with this thing and do some work? No, it doesn't work that way. Every five seconds, got got to be entertained. We have a big show for you today, Leander Sherlackins. Will join us to break down the U.S. men's national team draw against Switzerland yesterday. Should be a good uh, discussion with Leander. Perhaps we'll touch on his beloved Dutch as they uh, beat Spain two nothing in a friendly. And then Manuel Vett from football football grad. Did I get that right? Let me say football grad dot com. Will join us to talk a little bit uh, about some uh, some crowd issues, some fan issues in uh, in Montenegro. Uh, with the Russians a couple of last week, excuse me, get the timing right on that. Georgia has been charged by UEFA for some fans on the field. It's not going to be all bad with Manuel. We'll, we'll, we'll try to uh, dive into some good stuff as well. Ukraine uh, continues to be a, a good story, at least in terms of the international game. Nearly nearly knocked off Spain, or nearly pulled a draw out of uh, out of that game against Spain. Uh, we'll talk 2018 Russian World Cup as well, because that'll be an evolving story. We're only three years out, and Russia's got to get ready. The rest of the world has to get on board with a Russian World Cup. We'll see how that's going with Manuel Vett. Should be a good discussion with him as well. Let's go ahead and jump into the headlines before we talk to Leander. As I mentioned, the United States improved. Over their last match against Denmark with a 1-1 draw against Switzerland, Breck Shea with a an excellent free kick just before halftime to give the United States a lead. Everything a bit sullied by the fact that Josie Altsdor was shown a red card for, first of all, a bad tackle. And, and if you watch that sequence, Josie was upset he didn't get a call. You saw him steaming down, uh, chasing down the ball in intent on getting the ball back and or making a, a rash tackle, which he did. Yellow card for that. Then he goes ahead and tells the referee to F off. Or he said F you, whichever one doesn't matter. He said F something and was promptly shown a red card, sent off the United States down to 10 men, tried to hold on, could not quite do so. But again, it's an improved performance. How much we give credit to Jurgen Klinsen for the improved performance, considering how low the bar was, is an open question. We'll get to that with Leander Shalakins. Uh, this in the news, the, the New York Yankees have told NYCFC and MLS they can't guarantee the stadium uh, stadium avail- availability for Yankee Stadium after September due to field conditions, due to fan behavior. They've instructed NYCFC to look for a new 2016 home. And in the meantime, New York City FC is in discussions with the New York Red Bulls to share a stadium in Harrison, New Jersey. In friendlies, uh, inter- international friendlies, Mexico has uh, uh, backed up their win. Um, they're st- backed up their win. Who did they beat last week, Trevor? This is went out of right, right out of my head. Ecuador, Saturday, 
They beat Ecuador on Saturday. They beat Paraguay last night. I watched some of that game. Eduardo Herrera scored his first Mexican goal, Mexican national team goal to lift El Cree over Paraguay. one nothing. There wasn't really a whole lot in that game. It wasn't, uh, it wasn't a classic Mexican performance. Paraguay kicked the Mexicans around a bit. Uh, Mexico created a couple of decent chances, but I didn't see a whole lot that, uh, that gives you the, the thought that Mexico is going to steamroll into the Gold Cup. And remember, Miguel Herrera has to balance out the Gold Cup, which is the priority because they want that Confederations Cup ticket with the Copa America tournament as well this summer. In an actual meaningful match, Belgium beat Israel 1-0. Vincent Company sent off in that game, but the Belgians hold on. Not their best performance, not Company's best performance. People talking about Vincent Company and his downward trajectory, something to watch, uh, certainly from a Manchester City perspective, as well as a Belgium perspective. Remember, this is the golden generation. This is a team that's supposed to win some things. They don't seem to be on that track, but they um they do have tons of talent. Every now and then you see a little bump in the road with the Belgians. Lots of, again, lots and lots of talent. Can they go into Euro Euro 2016 next year in France and actually do something? Remains to be seen. Mentioned the the Dutch beating Spain two nothing. A a disappointing performance for Spain. So one this is how the pendulum swings. One moment Goose Hitting is under pressure. At, uh, with the Dutch and, and could potentially lose his job because they're not playing well. Then the Dutch beat Spain, who put in a, a rather toothless performance, and now there's questions over whether or not Spain's going to be able to get it together ahead of Euro, Euro 2016 next uh, next summer. Not that anybody thinks that Dabasca is going anywhere. But Spain, obviously, um, ha- has a couple of issues to sort out uh, themselves. Best teams in the world can sometimes go through some of these stretches. Borussia Dortmund defender Mats Hummels says he never made a pledge to Manchester United to join that club at some point in the future. I love this story. It's not much of a story, and I admit it, and I included it in the news to round things out today. But the story is that Mats Hummels wants to stay at Dortmund or says that this is a fib or a lie or a fabrication, putting it mildly that he told Sir Alex Ferguson in 2012 that he would join Manchester United at some point. Now, again, that's three years ago. So at what point was he supposed to be joining Manchester United? When was this promise supposed to come to fruition? If there's no date on it, there's no deadline on it, what is it? Who cares? Matt Hummel said that one day he'll play for Manchester United. He could just keep putting that off. As long as he never said when, he can just keep putting that off. And, of course, Borussia Dortmund want to hold on to him. Here's the quote. He said, uh, he said that the, to make one thing clear, the alleged promise is a complete fabrication, and that's putting it mildly. And this is from Bill, who reported this on Tuesday, that in 2012, the center back made a promise to then United manager Sir Alex Ferguson that if he were to make a move abroad, he would only sign at Old Trafford. Okay, so there's a little bit of specificity, terrible, a little bit of specificity on that. And of course, as I said, Dortmund wants to keep him. Dortmund have said they are completely relaxed about Hummel's future. And uh, Hans Joachim Watzke told Sky that uh, Germany interna- the inter- German international says he feels great here. So there you go. Not much, again, not much of a story. I'm just sort of fascinated by these. He said, he said little situations. All right, let's take a break. When we come back, we will grab our friend Leander Shalakins. 
soccer writer extraordinaire to break down the United States draw with Switzerland. Perhaps we'll range a field with him as well. Don't go anywhere. Soccer Morning, brought to you by WorldSoccerTalk.com. Welcome back to Soccer Morning on World Soccer Talk with Jason Davis. Here we go, back on Soccer Morning, chatting with Leander Shalakins, soccer writer extraordinaire. Leander Alphabet on Twitter. Leander, how are you? I'm well, Jason. How are you? I am, I am well. I'm, I'm a little heartened by that performance that the Americans put in in Zurich against Switzerland yesterday. Not because I think it shows... Oh look, they're they're going to be fine. The Gold Cup, uh, you know, the challenge for the Gold Cup is going to be strong. Just because it's it was some improvement over that Denmark game, I, I, am I am I underselling it? Am I overselling it? Where am I on this? I, I think you're about right. I think we've gotten to a point now where we had such a lackluster string of results um, going back really to the World Cup that any game where we're sort of seeing a little bit of cohesion, where a little bit of incisiveness um, is 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 a win. Uh, even if it wasn't a win, of course. Um, it was, I, I pointed out on uh, on Twitter and in my Yahoo column, it was the 14th goal the U.S. has conceded in the 80th minute or later in their last 15 games, spanning all the way back to sort of uh, the uh, the send-off series before the World Cup. And, and that's deeply concerning. But just the fact that they sort of looked cohesive and that, you know, for the most part, they were savvy and they were absorbing pressure and then kind of breaking away. I, I thought was encouraging, and uh, and and maybe it's it's kind of telling that we're grappling for this sort of silver lining here now. I actually thought it was pretty interesting. Um, the MLS website, MLSsoccer.com, said this was maybe one of the best performances under Jurgen Klinsmann, and that leads me to ask, you know, is is that really good enough? Yeah, you know, I, I saw Matt Doyle was uh, was pretty effusive with, uh, I don't want to say praise, but with his encouraging words uh, about this performance. Now, I did see the same things. I saw absorbing pressure fairly well. I saw getting out of trouble fairly well. I saw using the flanks to a certain extent, maybe to relieve the pressure, not necessarily to a, an attacking benefit. Uh, Timmy Chandler had a rough day, uh, at least in the final third. But, but there there is the issue of, you know, controlling the ball controlling the game and and i maybe I don't maybe i don't expect the united states to go on the road in europe and control a game lander but i expect them to do a little bit better with the ball at their feet than than they did yesterday that's how low the, low the bar is now right when it's at one point i think they were talking about 35 percent possession in that game that's not good no and and that's just the thing of it jason i mean the the whole point of the Klinsman tenure was to lift this team to a higher level and the higher level was defined as proactive soccer, that, that old Klinsman buzzword, um, possession, high pressure, um, taking it to other teams. And really what they were successful with yesterday is going back to those old staples that had kind of gone AWOL under Klinsman of sound organization, um, you know, sort of a, a sturdy defense. Well, maybe not even that yesterday, but a, a team that's cohesive and a team that's that's working and toiling and laboring together mm-hmm. um, in in tight little units um, that understand how to break on the counter 
comp, you know, in in a way that's that's swift and smart, that's like you know absorbing and then breaking away. I mean, it looked a lot like uh, a U.S. team circa, you know, 2009, 2010 un, under Bob Bradley. Only uh, I don't know that that yesterday they were as good as they would have been back then. Maybe that's not entirely fair because his team is between cycles, but. You know, the, these are the things that we're sort of reaching for now. I'm looking at the stats. Uh, according to the MLS website, 37% possession for the United States yesterday. Passing accuracy of 74% with 200 less passes, 200 fewer passes than Switzerland overall in the game. Again, it's it's almost like we're... It's almost like... I understand what, what, what Klinsman's... Uh, you know, his words and the disconnect between his words and, and how this team plays are the biggest factor for me. But it does. It almost feels like we're trying to get back to the, a Bob Bradley level. And I don't remember being super enthused about the way they played back then, even when they were somewhat successful with it. Yeah, I mean, Bob Bradley's tenure, the way I remember it is it was, you know, the the soccer wasn't always sparkling. But his teams were solid, and they never really, you know, had a had a game where you had a whole raft of players put in a terrible performance. I mean, it was it was always decent, and they scored a lot of goals in qualifying, and it was always sort of structurally sound. Mm-hmm. Um, and and that's just not true under Klinsman. And you know, we have seen the occasional flash of of what the, of what Klinsman had been preaching about. I, I seem to recall. Um, the Jamaica game in Columbus in 2013, a World Cup qualifier for the first half, they were dazzling. But those episodes have been so few and far between. And the rest of the time, it's, it's often just been disjointed mm. and, and just kind of scattershot. And they're giving up all these late goals. They're giving away results. Um, you know, we've seen all this turnover of players coming through again and again. Um, I, I wrote this in my Yahoo column, I think it was last week, uh, Klinsman has used 55 players since the World Cup. And now you can say it's a rebuilding time, you know, it's after a cycle, but of the teams that reached the round of 16 um, that didn't change managers, that's the most, by, by a pretty good margin. Um, so he's, he's going through all these players, and he never seems to be able to settle yeah. on who it is he wants to play with, even though he's seen an awful lot of guys by now. And I think that's what led Jesse Marsh, the New York Red Bulls coach, who of course was Bob Bradley's assistant, to say that the team doesn't have an identity, because his argument was even when you're cycling through players, you should still have something of a house style, something of a system um, that, that everything sort of uh, revolves around. Well, how- and the house style that, that Jurgen talked about for years, and hasn't much lately i still don't see how much of that is on the fact that that michael bradley is not entrenched in a in a position that he can make his own i mean he's a 10 in the world cup he's something of an eight and a half he's something of a he's never a six anymore but i'm not sure that's the best use of his talent it's almost like and i've even seen it argued that maybe it's not necessarily on cleansman that bradley is sort of a tweener in the midfield but how much of it is is the fact that your best player isn't really able to put forth his best effort because of, of that in that indecisiveness on position. Well, I, I don't personally think Bradley's a tweener, first of all. I think he's an eight. Okay. I think he's a guy who's a really good distributor. He's not a ten. He well, doesn't play that high up the field. It, but he's at his best, I think, when he can sort of shuttle between the boxes, make those late runs, and distribute from deep. Um, you know, the, there's, there's, a, there's schools of thought between coaches 
and some say that you fit your players to your system, and others say that you fit your system to your players. And I think that Jurgen kind of vacillates between the two, and he doesn't have a 10. The U.S. has never really had a 10, uh, but, you know, he kind of insists on, on wedging uh, Bradley into that, into that hole. Um, you know, I, I think that's you have to probably fault Jurgen for that. Mm. And you see that a lot. I've been covering this team for a pretty long time now, and most games ahead of time, I still have no idea what I'm going to see. I don't know what the formation's going to be. I don't know what the tactics are going to be. I don't know who's going to go where. It's just become completely unpredictable. And while that has its merits when you're, you know, trying to surprise opponents, I think in this case there there's just so much of of that turnover and unpredictability that it kind of backfires on the team itself. Absolutely. I mean, I think that's the the biggest, uh, the most obvious criticism that you can throw a Klinsman without getting into his selections, his form, his actual formations, and maybe even some of these elements that, uh, you know, are, it's, it's, it's interesting whether or not we put the collapse issue on Jurgen Klinsman, Leander. Is that, is that his fault that they're giving up so many late goals? I mean, in friendlies, you do have to factor in how many substitutions are being made, but even when they're, even when there's a couple of changes, you would expect them to be able to sort of lock in, especially if they have a lead, and, and be able to protect that. Well, the, the friendly argument for me is a little bit of a red herring because whenever you know the U.S. they beat Mexico in a friendly, they beat Italy in a friendly, they beat Bosnia in a friendly, and, and we're we're shouting it from the rooftops. But then when they're bad results in friendlies, it's oh well, you know they're only friendlies. <laughs> uh, I think when the players are great. so seldom the same and the problem is consistent, then you do have to look at the coach. And I mean, he points to fitness and all of that, and he has used some young players who who you know might have mental lapses late on in the game. But when it's this consistent for this long, you do have to wonder what what the issue is here and what the what the larger structural problem is. In terms of individual performances yesterday, anything stand out for you? I mean, Josie Altidore obviously set off. That kind of ruins his day. I think he does what Klinsman wants him to do for the most part. Um, we obviously had Jassy Zardis up at forward. I'm not sure he was overly effective. Alejandro Bedoya was everybody's pick for man of the match. Is that what you saw as well? Yeah, I really like Bedoya out on the wing. I think in a 4-4-2, that's a really good spot for him because the U.S. just needs someone who can create something. And And, you know, it's Maybe that's that's more direct soccer than than Klinsman and and maybe a lot of the fans would like to see, but it was effective. I mean, he created chances. Um, I quite like Breck Shea at left back. I thought against a, a pretty strong opposition, he held his own. He he wasn't you know tested on every single play, but I think he looked solid back there. And what's encouraging for me there is that the U.S. now has three viable options at left back. Um, Shea, Fabian Johnson, and Greg Garza, who's been really good since the World Cup. So th- that is a – I don't remember the U.S. ever having three viable options at left back. Yes. So, so that's encouraging. Um, I thought Danny Williams looked pretty good. He sort of played that Kyle Beckerman role of, of playing a six and just kind of shielding the defense and helping with the, uh, with the start of the, um, of the build-up play. I thought he was good there. And I think you have to consider that Beckerman, I believe, is going to be 33 pretty soon, and Williams is only 26. So it's it's encouraging that they have a guy who can play in that role. Absolutely, the left back thing is is kind of mind boggling, considering the, the long history of the United States being un, unable to develop a, a decent left back. Uh, when it comes to when it comes to right back, there might be a little bit of a question. I mean, DeAndre Yedlin. 
has yet to make that position his, his own. We don't really know what Clinton's going to do with him day in and day, or, uh, you know, from match to match. He has yet to get his feet wet at Tottenham. You have Timmy Chandler, who again, uh, was, did, did help in the attack in, 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 in the sense of being a passing option, Leander. I don't think he made the right decisions, uh, when he, when he pushed upfield and then he got caught out for the, uh, for, for, uh, and was it the goal or was it a, just an excellent chance on the part of Switzerland? I can't remember, but he certainly lost Shakiri at one point. So the, the these issues are going, and the and the center back thing is not yet settled. There are a lot of guys that that Klinsman's shuttling in and out of there. Yeah, I mean, I think frankly, uh, Chandler was was to blame on on both of those big chances. I mean, the one that resulted in the goal and the one that didn't, because the first he was totally out to sea when uh, Sh- Shakiri sort of found all that space behind him, and on the second he actually stepped back. And kept the way behind his line and kept the goal scorer stalker on right, line. Right, that's the um, chance. Yeah. So, so he he certainly didn't have a banner day. But what what's interesting is I think kind of all the backs that Klinsman likes to use between Yedlin and Chandler and Johnson and uh, and Shea are known at least or or typically are better going forward than they are at actually defending, which is a problem when you're going to spend as much time defending as the U.S. is, and which is why I think he likes to use some of those guys in midfield as well. Uh, but, but, and I, I think that's what has people encouraged about Garza, is that he's actually a good one-on-one defender, <laughs> uh, which, which is encouraging for a, a defender. But, um, so you're seeing a lot of that. And uh, like you say, there, there's so much, so much turnover in the central defender spots now he's got Brooks next to Orozco that, um, you know, you, you worry about those guys just being able to develop chemistry. When um, Matt Beasler and Omar Gonzalez were getting a long run together last year uh, before the World Cup and, and during qualifying, that really benefited them so much, and it kind of helped settle down the entire back line. And then, of course, Gonzalez got pulled uh, uh, during the World Cup a, a few times for Jeff Cameron, but... Um, you, you do need sort of that consistency and that continuity back there. And again, this is a rebuilding year, and this is the time to try things. But it, it's the the amount of um, of players being shuttled in and out is is just so high that it's it's really becoming, I think, uh, problematic. Now they play the uh, the United States plays Mexico on a on a non FIFA date in uh, fifteen days, fourteen days. Um, big friendly that's just mainly meant to to make some money for both federations. Um, and, and then there, then you, you're pretty, pretty close to the, to the, uh, to the gold cup. You got two friendlies in Europe to prepare for the gold cup. And we still don't know, have zero sense of what Klinsman thinks his best 11 is. Oh, no idea at all. And I, I, I really hope, I mean, for the fans sake, um, that he uses those two games to actually build a team and, and the camp that's surrounding it. I mean, it's after the European club season, so I'm guessing he's going to have some extended time with his guys, um, especially since the Gold Cup is kind of late this year because of the Women's World Cup. Um, so it, it would probably behoove him to really use that time to actually work on a starting 11 and, and on a consistent uh, system and on chemistry. I mean, you, you have to wonder about these guys with so many new faces in every single camp where, where they probably need name tags, um, you, you do worry about that old American staple of being a unit and being a tight team and sort of knowing they can rely on each other, going by the wayside a little bit. Mm. Uh, let's, uh, before I lose you, Leander, let's uh, quickly turn to Europe and let's talk about your Dutch. They uh, 
get a win over Spain in a friendly. But the the situation with uh, the Netherlands is not has not been great before that match. Some serious pressure um, when it comes to the performance. What's going on with the Dutch right now? Well, it's it's hard and. As like the team that played Spain, they seem to be sort of a little bit between generations now. I mean, Robin van Persie, Wesley Snyder, and Iron um, Robin certainly aren't past it, but they've been carrying this team for a long time. Yesterday they were without Robin, and uh, and they beat Spain anyway. But um, you've got a new generation coming through now, guys like Memphis Depay and uh, Jorginho Wijnaldum, and just uh, quite a good amount of talent. But that doesn't seem to be quite ready yet. And so after the World Cup, after Louis van Gaal left, uh, Chris Hiddink took over again. He was in charge in 1998 when they reached the semifinals. Um, and Hiddink famously is sort of a man-manager. I mean, he's a guy that's really good, and, and you saw it with South Korea, and particularly at the 2002 World Cup, at sort of creating a team and creating an atmosphere where guys – trust each other and like each other and they can sort of be more than the sum of their parts. And that's the, the, the Dutch team certainly has bickered a lot in the past, but this is a team with a lot of issues. Um, the defense isn't very good. The Dutch defense has, has never really been very good except for a period in the mid to late nineties, which is why Louis van Gaal had actually gone to a five man back line. Mm-hmm. The first thing Hiddink did was sort of dump that um, and, and immediately the problems emerged. Um, they started off European qualifying with two losses out of three to the Czech Republic at home. Uh, no, sorry, Czech Republic away, Iceland away. And they beat uh, Kazakhstan at home 3-1, but that was kind of labored. And then they lost to Mexico in a friendly. And, uh, and the other day they barely scraped out a 1-1 tie against Turkey. They did manage to beat Spain, and they were sort of really uh, efficient with their chances in the first half. But they pretty much got outplayed in the second half. So for me, that, that wasn't at all a resounding win because you expect the Dutch to hold the ball and to control the play. So thing, things are really in turmoil in the Dutch camp right now. Well, yeah, but the, turmoil in the Dutch camp is something that the rest of the well, most teams around the world would love to have because – it, regardless of the turmoil, they're still managing to qualify for everything and, and compete for everything. And yeah, they might have a bad tournament here or there, but y- you know, you do, there, there's enough talent in, in the Dutch side and, and coming through the system that you can always imagine them as a semifinalist, no matter what they're playing in. They, they are, but I mean, they're, we're at a point now where the Dutch are also kind of thinking, you know, we've got all these great players coming through and we do get far in all these tournaments, but we still haven't won a world cup. Uh, we've won one Euro. So there, there's a little bit of a sense of, you know, the, the always the bridesmaid syndrome. And I think that this time around, there's just not a whole lot of confidence in Chris Hiddink that he can, uh, that he can get this team going. I mean, yes, they beat Spain, but, you know, did they sort yeah. of dominate them? Did they outplay them? No. Um, were they sort of, you know, were really overmatched in the second half? Yeah, probably. They, they were just better with their chances because Spain doesn't really have a striker right now uh, um, or, or not one that played anyway. Yeah. So it's, it's, there's the confidence there. And, and I mean, obviously, you're, you're talking about a pretty high barrier for what the, uh, and a pretty high standard for what, what the Dutch have set, but there's just not the confidence that they're going to win anything anytime soon. Last question, uh, very quickly. Is Goose hitting in charge of this team when they go, if they go, and they're in third place right now in their group, if they go to the finals next year in France? 
Uh, honestly, I would call it 50-50. It okay. kind of depends on how the resumption of their of their qualifiers go. And and you know what, the Dutch, I mean, the, the aesthetics are so important that even if they're winning games, they're, they, they, you wouldn't put it past them to fire a manager just because it doesn't look the way it's supposed to look. I mean, after Van Gaal left, actually long before he... He, he left when he announced he would leave. They put in place sort of the six- or eight-year plan where Chris Hiddink was going to take over for two years. That was going to be his last job. And then for um, after Euro 2016, he was going to hand it off to Denny Blint. Mm-hmm. Um, and he was going to be the manager sort of long-term. So it, it always struck me as, as a little bit speculative and, and almost arrogant to, to think that you can you know, set yourself up with your managers and sort of pre-appoint your managers, you know, eight years down the line, uh, it struck me as crazy, and, and it has backfired a little bit. Lander Sherlockins, you can follow him on Twitter, Lander Alphabet. He's writing in many places these days. Uh, Lander, appreciate your time and your insight. Thanks a lot. Hopefully we'll talk to you soon. Sounds good. My pleasure. Right, there goes uh, Lander Sherlockins, who has been busy today. We'll come back. We'll talk to Manuel Vett about some hooligan issues in Eastern Europe uh, and other topics surrounding that part of the world. Soccer Morning brought to you by World Soccer Talk. Don't go anywhere. Be right back. Welcome back to Soccer Morning on World Soccer Talk with Jason Davis. We turn now to Eastern European topics with Manuel Vett from footballgrad.com. Excellent website covering that part of the world. I'm looking right now at the front page. We've got stories on Ukraine, Russia, uh, Atletico Madrid. Obviously, that's not Eastern Europe, but there's a connection there. Trust me, a lot of things happening. Manuel, how are you, sir? I'm all right. How about you, Jason? I am good. Now, uh, the most recent thing I've read by you at uh, footballgrad.com addresses the issues uh, that popped up in the Montenegro-Russia game. This is uh, this is troubling because look, crowd trouble is always troubling, uh, Manuel. But in this particular case, again, we, we go back to some of the things that have happened um, in the recent past when it comes to nationalism. And I think that's the buzzword that scares everyone. Is that what we're looking at here as well? Yeah, that's absolutely what we're looking at here. Um, to give you an example, it's very similar to the incident that happened between the uh, Serbia-Albania game a few months ago, where a drone carried a flag um, depicting a large Albania into the stadium, and which also caused um, the game to be interrupted and eventually abandoned. And this is a similar issue here with um, Russian fans uh, joining together with Serbian fans, declaring greater Slavic brotherhood, etc., and then Montenegro fans, of course, um, responding to it. And, um, I mean, that part of the world is so, the Balkans is so volatile when it comes to nationalism to begin with. So any kind of little spark can always set it off. And, and, and again, I mean, I, I, I referenced this before we came on the air. Um, um, Platini, who just uh, was re-elected UEFA president for the third time, Running unopposed, made some comments in his address after after winning about the rise of some of these issues. Um, is there something you know? How is UEFA t- uh, tackling it now? How do you think they're doing in that regard? Is, is there something else that can be done? And 
you know, look, the, 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 the combination of football and politics and national pride, you're never going to be able to separate those things. It's impossible. So mm-hmm. how is the, what's the best approach to, to attempt to keep these things from, uh, again, sort of infiltrating the stadium? That's a very good question. Um, I think in general, UEFA has always said uh, you can't mix football and politics. And as you said, that's, that's just never going to happen. I mean, the, the reality is so different. Politics and football are so intertwined. How are you going to address these issues, though? I think we are now at the point where UEFA has to be just handing out very harsh punishments because it has tried anything, really, as in closing parts of the stadium, playing in front of empty stands, etc. I think that punishments have to be harsher and at the same time UEFA has to introduce measures that force um, football association, national football association to educate football fans. Mm. I think that it has, it has to be a two-step approach. On the one hand, harsh penalties. Maybe even if it means disqualifying one of these countries, yes, that might be an approach. And at the same time, but also making sure that football fans are educated and not acting in this manner. You know, you, you say that, and of course, I mean, I, it would be very cynical of me to say that that's not going to work. And, and I want it to. And of course, you have to be proactive. You can't just, you can't just take a hands off approach. Yeah. I, but the other, the other part of me uh, when it comes to being cynical is, whether UEFA would ever actually take those steps. And we've seen the disconnect every single, every time that there's an incident, uh, incident of, of racism, of fan violence, of, of chant, uh, of sectarian chanting, all of these things that pop up that UEFA has to deal with, they issue a fine and it's always underwhelming. And then we get the comparison. I think someone in uh, Scotland, I apologize, or no, someone in, in, um, Scandinavia was fined recently for their field not being up to par. And, yeah. and the fi- the fine was was similar to a fine for racist behavior in the stands. Mm-hmm. That's that's the wrong message, Manuel. It is absolutely the wrong message, and I think that's why the punishments have to be a lot harsher for um, things that like they happen in the Montenegro Russia game. I think one of the big issues is, and I addressed this in the article, is it's almost UEFA is almost this brotherhood of former players, isn't it? Um, you have someone like Savicevic, Dijan Savicevic phone bloody knee during the game saying hey we cannot interrupt this game this has to get going keep going and uh, Dennis Aitekin the referee he wanted to stop the match the moment the flare hit Akinfeev but then the phone call comes right and the the game keeps going so I think that is actually the one of the big issues is that the fact that people within UEFA have a sort of bound like work together and make sure that really the harsh punishments are not being handed out. You, 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 the elements in this particular dynamic with the, the Russians and the Montenegrins, and as you said, the, the volatility of the Baltics, uh, the Balkans, yeah. excuse me, the Balkans, and obviously, as you said, the, the Slavic element uh, with Russia. And yet Russia, as you point out in your piece, Russia really can't toss a lot of stones in this situation They've, they've had issues at home, and, and that, that's not necessarily a, a nationalism, an issue of nationalism every single time. We're also talking about club loyalties coming to the forefront as a reason for violence on behalf of these fans. And again, Emmanuel, maybe it's not fair that we do this, but the microscope's going to be on whoever has the World Cup next, and that happens to be Russia. Yeah. And I, want, I, I, I think people want to be sure that there are steps being taken because too often we hear from the authorities there who are downplaying these issues. 
Oh, absolutely. And I mean, Russia is a very good example for that. Um, there was a recent report by FAIR, the Football Against Racism organization, F-A-R-E-E, -E, that has reported um, a form of a black book on issues of racism in, in Russia in the buildup of the um, World Cup. And I'm actually um, going to have an article out tomorrow because Russia has recently brought in a new office, an anti-racism um, office within the Russian football um, union that is supposed to deal with problems of racism in Russian football. This is, of course, under pressure from FIFA. But I'm I'm very I'm not sure if this is actually going to do enough to really solve the problems there. There's a lot of uh, consternation over the Russian World Cup. And, and while yeah. I believe that ultimately it'll be fine because FIFA likes to sanitize everything that they touch and, and they'll find some way to keep, um, for lack of a better word, the rabble out, Emmanuel, th there is, uh, there is a, a wider question of whether or not the international community and, and international football community specifically is, is feeling good about what's happening there and feeling good about what FIFA is doing. I mean, clearly... We haven't seen enough change at the top. They keep making noises about it, and yet here we are. Do, do you believe that there's any any sense at all that someone somewhere could decide to boycott the tournament or there could be uh, a sponsor pullout that would affect FIFA and force them to respond? I doubt it. Um, even if a sponsor pulls out, I mean, we had examples of sponsors pulling out. There is always 10 sponsors lined up that would happily take their place. It's too much money, Jason. The thing is, there's so much money that you can make as a FIFA sponsor. The fact that if you are a sponsor of a major tournament like the World Cup simply means, and it's the exclusive rights that come with it, right? Because there's only about six, seven exclusive sponsors means that there's so much money. Mm. And there's so many sponsors that would like to get in that are willing to sort of deal with these issues or even gloss them over. Um, so I think from the advertisement perspective or the sponsorship effect perspective, there's not much that will be done on the, on the football side. I think, you know, you will always hear players saying, Oh, we, sh we shouldn't be going. Um, it's going to be dangerous. There's going to be racism towards black players, etc." In the end of the day, everyone is still going to go just because you know that it was the same for Ukraine. For example, there was issues of racism there. In the end of the day, everyone still went because, you know, even for individual players, playing in a World Cup means an increase of that player's value, sure. means that they can possibly make more money on the next contract. So it really comes down to that, doesn't it? It's all about money. It, so I think there's going to be a lot of words thrown around, but in the end of the day, it's still going to go ahead. It's just, and again, I mean, I don't know how fair it is to project these kind of things on Russia, but, you know, you have... You have the Euros in Ukraine and, and Poland, and, uh, and there may have been some issues there, and you certainly have black players for many European nations. But you also have, for the World Cup, you have a different dynamic when the Ivorian fans come into town or the Nigerian fans come into town or you know large groups of fans who happen to be black. Is that something that, that, the, you, know, is that, something that you see as a potential issue um, this far out? And is this the, the steps that Russia is going to be taking are they going to be to making? Are they going to make sure that those fans are going to have a good time? Because that's what it's about. Yeah, um, I, I mean, it now appears that they are taking steps um, towards making sure that those fans will have a good time. 
Am I entirely convinced that that will be enough? To be honest, not really, because in Russia, and I mean, I've spent a lot of time in Russia myself, of course, the educated people, um, and there's lots of them, and, you know, they're, they're the majority, they, they, they don't see, they see the issues of racism the same way than you and I do. You know, they're very much opposed to it. It's the fact that there is still strong racist elements, though, that sometimes worries me. And I think it will take more than just saying, okay, we're going to create this new office, this new anti-racism office, or, you know, just providing lip service. I think there has to be a real effort to even educate the general population on issues such as racism. And that's something that right now I'm still, is still lacking a bit in Russia. The one little positive I see is the fact that FIFA has put pressure on them. Um, I don't often say very many positive things about FIFA, but I, they have put a lot of pressure on them. They have been very adamant about it. And the Putin uh, government has actually responded by promising to introduce education and um, a whole bunch of different measures to curb racism in Russian society in general. So maybe something positive will come out of it. But, you know, three years to change something that is so ingrained in a society is not a long, long lot of time. At the same time, three years has been that kind of uh, the kind of time frame that has brought back uh, uh, the rise. And, and I'm bringing this back to some bigger issues, Manuel, the, the rise of, of nationalism in, in Europe. Some of these far right groups, some of these anti-immigrant groups are gaining traction. Um, I, I don't want you to give me your 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 assessment of the political state of, of Europe right now and, and why these things are happening. But again, they trickle over to football and, and you know, I, I, I just don't, I don't know what to do. I don't know what football can do about it. I, I want, I, I don't, I'm not a big fan of Michelle Platini. I'm not a big fan of FIFA. I'm not a big fan of the way UEFA has handled some of these issues, but at the same time, again, how, how do you possibly address something that is much, much bigger than just the game? Well, you do it through education. Uh, you, you, you punish people and you educate them. And I think um, a good example is Germany. I remember in the 90s, uh, in the late 80s and, and the 90s, racism in German stadiums was an issue. And nowadays it's pretty much non-existent. And the way they've done it, they have talked to the fans. And, you know, of course, you still get the, the occasional fan being saying something racist on the play, like, being racist um in the stadium making racist chants, but it's such a small occurrence now. And when it happens, everyone condemns it and puts that person on a negative pedestal, so to speak. And that has been done through education, through measurements by clubs, through measurements by the football association. So I think that is, that is a way to approach it. Um, and I think I can, you can see similar things happen in England as well. A, is it perfect yet? No, not absolutely not. And I think there's still a long way to go. So I think in Europe in general, we are in the right direction. In Eastern Europe, there is still a long way to go. Let me turn to something that's a little bit better, although um, Dynamo Kiev has certainly had their own issues with uh, with some, some fan problems, uh, Manuel. But they did manage to overcome Everton in, in the Euro uh, Europa League. Um, yeah. How important would, you know, how good, how great, how... How uplifting would uh, would a trophy be for for Kiev for that team and, and certainly that country? I think it would uh, be a great propaganda propaganda coup for <laughs> uh, the current Kiev administration. I mean, they have done a lot already to uh, you know sort of put themselves in a good light um, by Poroshenko, the president, 
of uh, Ukraine, the current president of Ukraine. He was photographed with uh, surrounded by a whole bunch of injured soldiers um, celebrating the victory against Everton. So I think it would be a great coup. I think it would also be personally, I think it would be also great for the country. Not sure how it will, how much it will actually change in terms of the dynamics that are going on in the country. I don't think um, it's not the same as it was, for example, you know, the Wunder von Bern when Germany won the World Cup after uh, in 1954 after World War Two, because the country is still amidst this crisis. So it's, it wouldn't be wouldn't not necessarily have that same uplifting kind of effect. But I think it would be great for the current, probably very good for the current uh, government, that's for sure. Well, Dinepro is also in this tournament as well, and I apologize mm-hmm. if I get my pronunciation really, really wrong here. Yeah. What's In terms of the, the, the profile of the two clubs, can you compare them and contrast them? And, and, and if there are some, some political elements at play, maybe explain those as well? Um, well, Dynamo Kiev is, you know, that's biggest most popular club in Ukraine um, it hasn't of course in recent years been sort of undermined by Shakhtar Donetsk um, who probably now have the same standing but back in the time of the Soviet Union uh, Dynamo Kiev was the all Ukrainian football club it was the biggest football institution in Ukraine during the time of the Soviet Union and of course for the, the, the first 10 years of independence as well as well and I think um, it's it's uh, the club is a sleeping giant. Um, they have in recent years understood that they have to do th- something about uh, creating marketing, etc. So I think um, you know them. They they would really uh, catalyze a lot of um, support for, by winning the cup. Dnipro is um, is more of a regional phenomenon. Um, and they are struggling a bit too because they don't have, they, they're not allowed to play UEFA games in uh, Dnipropetrovsk. They have to play them all in Kiev. So I think for them, it would not have the same effect winning the title as it would have for Dynamo. Um, so yeah, there's, there's huge differences. Also, Dnipro hasn't won a single title since, uh, or major title since the fall of the Soviet Union. Interesting. Um, you have uh, Club Bruges uh, against, uh, I'm going to say Dnipro, I'm sorry, I apologize for that. And then Dnipro Kiev against Fiorentina. Just from your, your footballing perspective, who's got a better chance of, of breaking through into the uh, semis? Well, you said Dnipro had a Bruges, right? Yes. Yes, uh, that that is the more likely candidate. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, but I th- I think even the Fiorentina Dynamo Kiev game is a is a fifty fifty, uh, especially because Kiev is such a difficult place to play. Um, I mean, Everton Everton experienced that, and I, I remember a few years ago uh, Borussia Mönchengladbach they they came into uh, Kiev and they lost three nil and won their home game two nil. It's a very difficult place to play, especially for international football. Should be fascinating to watch uh, two Ukrainian teams in the uh, quarterfinals of the Europa League. Manuel Vett, make sure you're checking out that website, footballgrad.com. It's F-U-T-B-O-L-G-R-A-D.com. Manuel, fascinating stuff. Thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it. Oh, thank you for having me on the show once again. Always fascinating talking to you, man. All right, I appreciate that. And let's take a break. When we come back, phone lines will be open 347-756-6276. You can get us on Twitter, at Soccer Morning. We'll take your phone calls and your comments. Don't go anywhere. Be right back.
Welcome back to Soccer Morning on World Soccer Talk with Jason Davis. Here we go back on Soccer Morning. Phone lines open 347-756-6276. we got a call from 504 on the line. Who's this? This is Zach Six and Jason, what's going on? What's going on, Zach? Not too much. I'm hanging out. I hear you guys are talking USMNT and NYCFC. We are doing that. <laughs> do you have comments on either one of those topics? I do. I do. I am a third rail member. I am an American outlaw, and I still cannot really enjoy MLS soccer or watching the U.S. Men's National Team play. It's just not enjoyable. Why? Uh, why? What? What? I understand. What do you mean? I look. You put. You put. An, you put the American flag around my shoulders. I will cry in the stadium when Deuce takes the field. Uh huh. But Breck Shea knocking in a free kick from twenty-five yards. You tell me. You realistically tell me that that is going to happen consistently, or that the, the the way the team's getting moved around this stuff isn't exciting. It's, uh, okay. It, it, I don't even know if we're making steps forward. Uh, okay. <laughs> well, I mean, I agree with that to a certain extent. We just talked about that. The steps forward are not obvious. The steps forward are, uh, if there are any, are are completely hidden from our public view. If if Jurgen Klinsmann thinks he's making progress, I'd like him to tell us how he thinks they're making progress. And of course, you're not going to count on a Breck Shea free kick goal every time out. But they did, they they did create some chances. They did. They were a, a little dangerous. Again, I'm sort of flabbergasted that we're talking about that game as a step forward when they had 37% of the ball. Now, look, I, possession stats get a little they get a little murky because how they're counted is not always clear. But sure. when, when they have 37% based on whatever that is, passes completed, whatever it is, it's not good. That's troubling. That's yeah. That's not. I mean, we shouldn't be like, oh, yay, we made progress. We should be going, wait a second. We got back to the level we were. I don't know, 10 years ago? I mean, that's the thing, but even 10 years ago, more effective team, more cohesive team, a team that yeah. knew how to play together. And again, this is a function of Klinsman turning over his lineup every single time out. Klinsman just kind of grabbing into a big bag of players and saying, oh, this one? Nah, throw that away. I'll pull out another one? No, okay. Okay, this is the guy I'm going to try this week. Meanwhile, again, there's no ability to create any sort of understanding between the 11 guys that are playing. It's just, it's insane. You got anything else? Um, no, that's pretty much it. I appreciate it, man. Go, uh, go, uh, hang out with the third rail. Washington's on the air. What's up, Washington? Hey, what's up, Jason? I don't know, cause I, I had to take the earphones off in order to listen to the call on the phone. So I don't know if you addressed this already, but I need to hear you say it, man. I need to hear you say that the blasphemy that you said earlier about NYCFC sharing Red Bull Arena in New Jersey is April Fool's. I need to hear you say that before I can address what I wanted to address for. Uh, Please can, tell me. Wait, can I plead the fifth, Washington? Can I plead the fifth? Can I, wait. Let, um, let's see. How, how else do I address this? Um, based on everything I've been told by certain individuals, there's a chance that that may be a, a thing that could possibly one day happen. Yeah, whatever. Okay. <laughs> I'm calling you BS on that. All right. I'm moving on. You're no fun, Washington. <laughs> you got me. You got me here banging my head against the wall. Anyway, right. I'm going to pretend like it's April Fool's and moving on. All right. Later, U- Washington. USMT, man. Oh, okay. uh, you got some comments? Listen, I'm, I'm, I'm really getting tired of cleansing. I, I, I am. At the, I'm at the point. I'm, I'm, if they lose against Mexico on the 15th, 
I'm calling for his head. Okay. I don't okay. care. It's a friendly. I don't care. Uh, you know that this is that, that you know it's not for a qualifier or anything like that. If he pulls his crap with Mexico, I'm calling for his head because okay. that, that that's it. I'm done with him. All right, that's fair enough, Washington. I mean, I, I think it'll be interesting to see what the fallout is. Thanks for the comment. I, I'm gonna see. It'll be interesting to see what the fallout is if they don't play well and lose. If they play well and get beaten by a penalty, a shaky penalty, or a, a fluke goal, or maybe a set piece. It, it, it could be there could be some debate if they lose and they play badly and and that game again means nothing outside of maybe getting a, a lineup together then there will be some questions jonathan tannawald's on the line what's up since your calls aren't being screened yet <laughs> i'm going to uh move for this to be the day when your producer trevor is finally puts his voice on there oh why today take a guess no i i have one but i'd like to hear you say it because i can't read your mind <laughs> Yeah, well, uh, it's a very particular day of the year, isn't it? I, I, I've been told that it is a particular day of the year. Okay. Yes. Well, yes. It, it's traditionally the day when everybody says, uh, get, log off the internet and don't even read anything at all. And maybe don't listen to this show either. Maybe, not, maybe that's the right advice, Jonathan. Maybe people shouldn't be listening to this show today because, well, uh, because you never know. You, you just never know. As as I said, I think today is the day that uh, Trevor should be heard of. <laughs> well, you because because you are aware is uh, you are probably more aware than anyone else that the the, the thing I'm not going to address <laughs> probably well, you already addressed it once in the show. No, I did, but probably originated from that individual, not from not from me particularly. I can't imagine I mean, not, why. I, I am party to everything here. I, I'm on the show. It's my show. I'm talking into the <coughs> microphone. Therefore, I own everything I say. But yes, it is a particular day of the year. Okay. All right. That's it. All right. Bye, Jonathan. Bye. <laughs> there you go. 662, you're on the air. Hey, guys. How's it going? It's, uh, it's going well. What's, uh, what's up? I have nothing much. Uh, this might be just a tad off topic, but I just, I just want to, I just want to kind of get your thoughts on this on what is the, uh, like the potential value to American soccer and the cat quote casual soccer fan as a whole of having all these other teams come, all these international teams come over and play their friendlies within our borders. You know, we see Mexico do it all the time. They played in Kansas city last night. Argentina played in New York last night. El Salvador played in LA last night. You know the answer to, to this question on uh, just, you know, if that, that could potentially be of uh, any value to the growth of the game. You know what the answer, you know why those games happen here. Those games happen money. here because they make money. That's it. End of story, period, whatever. Now, we can we can come to some convoluted conclusion about how Lionel Messi being in the United States and playing, he didn't play, but if he had, is a good thing for the growth of soccer and that you've got you know heroes here that the kids can look up to and one day aspire to be like and when mexico plays here you know clearly that's driving some sort of it's furthering the rivalry between the us and mexico and i don't know what whoever when when clubs come when big club teams come here obviously it's about money but hey it's exposure for the game and you know when the best players in the world are are on this uh, on american soil that's when the mainstream media starts to pay attention which therefore broadens the message of soccer. But, but come on, it's about money. Yeah, yeah. There's, I mean, there's no question that it's about money. But uh, you know, like, like it, to me, it, it's pot. I mean, it's not. It's not going to hurt the game. So you know, I go back and forth on whether I have an issue with Mexico playing their games here, just because you know, there's you know, there's the rivalry between the two. Uh, but like, I mean, it, I don't think it's going to hurt the game. It, it could only 
potentially be a good thing. Now, yes, obviously it's no. I, I don't think it's. I don't think it's a net. I don't think it's a net loss uh, in terms of capital for the game, emotional capital, cultural capital for the game. I don't think it's a net loss, but I, I do. I, I, I think that in certain games, in certain times, in certain stadiums, with certain teams, can sometimes not be the greatest thing for American soccer, a big picture. But I, I don't know that we should be worried about that because this is a. There is a lot of momentum. It's not like you're slowing this thing down right now. So as far as I can tell, you know, let them come over. If, if, if it's a matter of breaking into a season schedule and causing problems, if guys get hurt playing in meaningless games, if uh, Mexico comes here and plays in games that are distracting from some other product, American soccer product, okay, maybe that's not great. But but again, as you said, it probably on the on the whole, it's probably a good thing. Anything else, man? No, no, that's it. Thanks for your time. Appreciate that. There you go. 347-756-6276 is your phone number. We'll take your calls on the U.S. Men's National Team performance against Switzerland yesterday. Again, it, it's, very, it's a very odd phenomenon. It's a very odd thing to see when they have been play, <clears throat> playing poorly enough that we were legitimately worried about whether or not they're going to get it together in time for the Gold Cup. And they put together a a fairly good performance, a a solid reactive performance. That's where I'm gonna. That's the way I'm gonna phrase this: a solid reactive performance. And suddenly, that's a that's re, not celebration. Nobody's screaming from the rooftops. Nobody necessarily thinks that they are a, an odds-on favorite for the Gold Cup now. But there's a lot of positivity floating around, and it's interesting that that's all it takes. And again, you had, you still have. And an unclear lineup situation. You still relied on a set-piece goal. You still gave up your lead. Josie Altidore is not helping the, the situation and our analysis by having picked up that red card. It makes it a much more difficult thing to look at that game and take it in its totality and say, it might mean this, it might mean that. And, and as Leander pointed out, friendlies are that it's if it's if it goes well, yay, we won we won that game against Italy or whoever. But if it goes poorly, oh, it was just a friendly. And I think that I think there is a middle ground there. I think you take out some of the big picture items. I think you take out the cohesive elements that may or may not be apparent. And I think you take out momentum because I think that matters. Guillermo's on the line. What's up, Guillermo? Hey, good morning, everybody. Well, yesterday was a great day for soccer, man. Catch caught the U.S. game, caught the Mexican game. Uh, and it feels like they're, they're both teams are like hitting the same way, right? They're barely stumbling by. Mexico got a win. The U.S. should have won. Um, I thought that they had uh, the run of play. Uh, the U.S. did really good. I mean, they went to Switzerland in the uh, you know the height, uh, playing you know one of the top, or middle of the table European teams. We're there. That's where our level is. Uh, the, the back end doesn't worry me. I think it'll tighten up. I think we get the Gold Cup and we go Confederations. If we don't do that, then cleans you gotta go. Okay, is that is that is that your opinion? I mean, that's a high bar. No, I think that's it. I think he's already got half of the of the door into confederations. If he doesn't get us in, he has two ways right. to get in. Right. If you can't do that, then we need to go in a different direction okay, before so, the World Cup starts creeping in. So, so, do you think? Do you think it? So, you you would say you would say it's okay to finish say third or fourth in the Gold Cup, but as long as you win that playoff for the Confederations Cup spot, he's still okay. We gotta be there. We gotta be able to put in the games before the World Cup, do that whole, 
uh, tour before and, and have some meaningful games for the team to move forward. If we can't even get in, then he's the wrong guy. Okay. Fair enough, Guillermo. Appreciate the phone call, man. Hey, take it easy, man. Yeah, Giovanni's on the line. What's up, Giovanni? Hey, man. Long time no talk. How are you doing? I'm, I'm good. I'm good. What's up? What's on your mind today? I want to talk a little about uh, the game yesterday, and I guess I want to talk a little bit about the Colts All right. and our opponents. Okay. Uh, I guess yesterday, the USA party, they, uh, what I was reading on Bleacher Report, man, they were saying that it was the, one of the best teams in the year in Clemson played, and I kind of have to disagree. Okay. Okay. Well, I mean, I I think again, what kind of what kind of pool are we ticket we're, we're we're grabbing from here? I mean, it's not like there's a lot of Jurgen Klinsmann games where you sort of look at the whole game and go, "That was that was pretty good." A lot of Jurgen Klinsmann games are extremely in the in the World Cup, despite the fact that they got some results, they beat Ghana. You know, you you draw with Portugal, you give up a late goal. That's what I'm saying. Like at the end, it's always, "Oh, whoops, we gave up a late goal. Whoops, we didn't we didn't hold our lead." The the tactics are, are questionable. You you have I, I don't know how many games are there on Jurgen Klinsmann's resume that you can pick out and say that was a good performance by the Americans. I just honestly I believe that the we're we're struggling because the thing is that Klinsmann is not a tactician. Well, I think we can all agree that he's not a tactician. And I think I have to start believing what Lock Philip Long had to say in his book, which was saying that he was basically letting players go with, do whatever they want. And at times they look lost. For instance, Jesse's artist, man, I don't. I don't think he knew what he was doing. Like, yeah, he, he did some good combination play, but other than that, he looked like a little lost kid running around some grown-up adults or something, man, because I was just, I was shocked on the way he was playing, and then Altador just looked frustrated, like, and then he yeah. just, he what? couldn't control the game. Part of his job is to have Altador calm down. Yeah. Well, I don't know if he can do that from the sideline. Certainly, Josie's issue was he felt like the Swiss were kicking him. He wasn't getting the calls that he wanted. He got frustrated, and obviously, it boiled over with the red card. But he, yeah, he was a, I, I, you know, again, Josie Outdoor is such a difficult player to assess um, in the internet in the international game in the U.S. setup because he scores the occasional goal, which he didn't do in England. We know he's doing that in Toronto when he's playing with them, but he does work that's necessary for the way that the United States plays. And I don't, I just don't see how you can replace him directly. This was the issue with the World Cup how you replace him directly. So it's almost like you have to put up with whatever Josie gives you, whether it's good or bad, because he is strong enough and he is uh, he is big enough to play a, 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 as a target, even if his touch is off, even if he's not winning enough headers. He's still the only guy you got that can do that job. Now, let me ask you something. Uh, when, during the game, do you think – Josie, because he wasn't getting, uh, obviously he wasn't getting that great of service. I mean, he got some service, but not great. Do you think is it because he doesn't have the quality to take on better defenders? Because these defenders were better than, you know, Switzerland's known for the defensive, you know, play. And do you think they're, he got frustrated because he can't play against the better defenders other than the, the last game where, you know, those defenders uh, weren't the greatest, but uh, what do you think on that? I, no, I, I don't know if that's the case. I mean, I've seen Josie Altidore beat some pretty good defenders, and I'm seeing him bottled up by some pretty average defenders. I think it's just a matter of how good he is on that particular day. Okay, and one more thing, Jason, about the goal cup, man. Uh, I was listening to the previous caller, and he was saying that he'd be happy with the third-place finish in the goal cup. Uh, what, he, uh, what he was saying is you've got to get into the Confederations Cup, and, he, and he's not – I guess his point was that should be the target 
making the Confederations Cup rather than winning the Gold Cup? Yeah, uh, well, I just got to say, man, I don't think that, I think we're really going to struggle this Gold Cup. I mean, you look at Costa Rica and how they play, how they've been playing, minus the loss against Panama the other day. And then you look at Mexico with Herrera playing, having Mexico actually playing really well and having these youngsters. When he brings in his youngsters, they actually play, he, he integrates them and they play well. When, in comparison to the United States, when you're in Clemson, they don't, I'm not going to say they don't play well, but they play either average or below, below average. So what, my, what I'm trying to say is I think we're going to actually struggle or if we're lucky, make it to the final against either Costa Rica, Mexico, or uh, Honduras. Because yeah. Honduras, even though they, they play like, they play off against Guayana, uh, they're, with the coach they have now, was Costa Rica's old coach, mm-hmm. I think they're they're going to have a good tournament. So I don't know I'm not, if I'm I'm not sold on Honduras at this point. We'll see. I mean, Panama, I think, could make some noise. And obviously, we know what Costa Rica and Mexico bring. Um, you know, and, 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 and it, this is the difficulty. I mean, I'm certainly, uh, because I'm so focused on the U.S. Uh, US and their preparation, I look at that game against Switzerland and I say, okay, well, this isn't good enough and they're not doing this well, but maybe they're, they're, <clears throat> maybe they're showing some progress in this area. Then last night I watched Mexico and Paraguay. And Mexico, Mexico wins on a very early goal. But they didn't do much for the rest of that game. And I guess if I was a Mexico fan, I'd find reason to pick that apart as well. But that doesn't mean Mexico's not a favorite. And it shouldn't mean that the United States isn't still a major threat to win. So it, it's just it's very difficult at this point in the process, being coming out of a World Cup year, heading into a Gold Cup that matters, to figure out where these teams are. Okay. Do you think that, okay, under your circumstances, when do you think we get rid of Clemson? If we do. Honestly... I don't think Klinsman ever gets fired. I think he runs his, I think his contract goes all the way to the end. That, that's just the, I, I don't see it. I, I don't see the, the, the Federation doing anything but that. I just can't. Because, I, they, they would have is to. Is it finish. because it's Galati's, is Galati's baby right there? I mean, they're paying the man a lot of money. They re-upped him before the World Cup. I, I and yeah, I think Galati has put all in and, and believes in the process. That Klinsman is taking the U.S. through, and, and again, this is that's what they're selling us. Whether or not you believe they're doing it this way, what they've sold us is that this is a process and that this is a revolution or an evolution of the program. That it isn't just about winning games right now. That it's about reforming the American attitude. I don't think they're doing a very good job of that, but I do think they're pushed all their chips into the middle on that. So I don't think he's getting fired, Giovanni. I think he's running his contract out. Okay, appreciate okay. the call, man. There you go. Three four seven, you're on the air. Hey Jason, how's it going? It's going well. Who's this? Caesar from New York. What's going on, Caesar? Uh pretty much I want to comment first of all. Nice try, Trevor, on that uh <laughs> little April Fool's tweet that he sent out. What are you talking about? I have no idea what you're talking about, Caesar. <laughs> but you, what, come on, man. You throwing throwing mud at the sh- at the program. You trying to claim that <laughs> never mind. Go ahead. Go ahead. <laughs> All right. And just my second comment on the uh US preparations for the Gold Cup. I mean, pretty much when you see Mexico send out a B team yesterday and beat pretty much the Paraguay's starting lineup, it kinda worries me that, you know, we might not have the death to go through the whole Gold Cup and actually put out a good starting eleven. 
I don't even know who would. Yeah, start. I don't. I don't know who that is. I mean, just, we just talked about that. I have no idea who their starting eleven is. And here's the thing about Mexico. And yeah, you know, consider the roster they had last night against Paraguay. Consider who was on the field. Jonathan DeSantos uh, is going to be part of their team. I don't know which one yet because that's the thing. Miguel Herrera has to decide who is my best team because that's the team he's going to take to the Gold Cup to try to win that tournament so we can get into the Confederations Cup or the playoff for the Confederations Cup. But then who is his second best team, his 1A team that he can take down to the Copa America? Because he's got to deal with both of those situations and they are prioritizing their regional tournament. Uh, and then one more thing. What are your thoughts on uh, Fredo Morales uh, on the national team? I'm I'm sort of I run hot and cold on him. I'm I'm not sure. I mean I think he's a, a a relatively talented player. I saw him lose the ball a couple of times for just not being quick enough with his decision making yesterday, and that that bothers me. And I don't think you can be doing that in midfield with the uh, diff, with the issues that the United States has on the back line. So that's that would be my major concern with Morales. I mean he's he's just a worker. You know what I mean? He's just he's just a guy who's going to give you a lot of effort and, and maybe he'll he'll have some recoveries and maybe he'll make a couple of uh, decent passes uh, maybe a switch or two here or there but he's not going to be the guy who makes things go so I, I don't know i feel like you could have somebody a little bit more dynamic in that position all right anything else man no nothing else uh, there you go caesar calling from new york i don't know what he's talking about so making stuff people are is this like the april fool's joke on us trevor people calling us up and saying that we're making stuff up is that how this works? We're being ganged up on. People have no idea what you're talking about. No. All right. Let's uh, take. A, let's go ahead and wrap up this edition of Soccer Morning on a Wednesday. Thank you very much for checking us out. As always, go to backheel.com slash store. Get yourself a mug. Uh, go to 3nailfc.com to, to buy a T-shirt. Uh, get, uh, get onto iTunes. Give us a rating and a review. That works out. Thank you very much to Leander Shalakins. And Manuel Vett for their appearances on the program today. Good stuff from both of them. Thursday, tomorrow's Thursday, April 2nd, 2015 is tomorrow. Like, that's a notable date because it's not April 1st. Whatever, we got to go. I'll talk to you guys tomorrow. Bye.